everyone, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. And today, my guest is a friend, a comrade, and someone whose perspective is going to be incredibly helpful for all of us, trying to make meaning of this moment, trying to understand where we're at in this economic crisis. My guest today is Francisco Perez, also known as Platanomics, and he's a solidarity economist, activist, educator, and researcher currently pursuing a PhD in economics. He's a director of the Center for Popular Economics, which is a nonprofit collective of political economists whose programs and publications demystify the economy and put useful economic tools in the hands of people fighting for social and economic justice. So if you are one of those people who feels confused about this moment, who is receiving a lot of messages in terms of what we know about our consumer power, purchasing power, or how to be moving in this economic crisis, this is a conversation for you. Welcome to the show, Francisco. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's an honor. Yeah. So... Um, I feel like the first time we met was here in Miami. We were doing the workshop, um, Artists for Liberation, and understanding all these things about economy. And something that really stuck with me was something you said. You, you, you kind of, in your own words, sort of said that you didn't start studying economy because you were just like in love with this, right? But rather you understood the sort of significance of political economy and how it impacts all of our lives. And that's kind of what set you in this work of pursuing a PhD in economics. Talk to me a little bit about what that process has been like and, you know, kind of how you ended up studying your work and, and into this work in general. Yeah, I mean, well, like like you said, um, I, I do this stuff because I think it's important. You know, I don't do the I'm in academia now, and it's it's been fascinating for me to watch how many people are really just in it for um, because they think it's interesting. Because um, you know, I we use the term intellectual masturbation, right? They just sort of get off on it, and and they nerd out, and they like you know, they think of it sort of as a puzzle, and and you know, kind of it activates that part of their brain. But to me, I'm like I study economics because I because who has and who doesn't is important. And I saw that throughout my whole life, right? Like my family, my parents are from the Dominican Republic. My whole family, my, my whole um, father's family, side of the family migrated to, the, to New York. And, you know, I grew up going to DR every two, three summers uh, as, as much as we could afford. And you would see like, you know, children barefoot. You would see um, people living in, in substandard housing, no floors, no, no sanitation, no water, no electricity. And just starting to think about why, right? Why these people had and, and why some of us had and other people didn't, right? And then, you know, growing up in New York on welfare, also seeing um, a lot of poverty, although I didn't understand that at that point because I didn't have the reference that, that would come later. And, you know, just realizing how much money you had um, determined how much power and agency you had as a person, right? So I think a lot about my mom, for example, who, um, was on welfare, who, you know, was, you know, and in, in the U.S. social pyramid, we were close to the bottom. And here was a very kind of powerless person. Um, you know, a lot of that had to do with race and, and class, but also with gender, right? Where when she did work, she would give my, the, the, you know, the uh, money over to my father. Um, and he was the one who controlled the, the finances. So it meant that mm -hmm. in, in our household, he made the decisions, right? And she kind of had to accept whatever, 
my dad said and then whatever the government said in terms of getting that uh, welfare check. Uh, and then seeing her in the Dominican Republic where she was a boss, right? Because she came with dollars and all of a sudden, you know, like her whole, um, her posture even would change, right? Like she could stand a little straighter and now she was the one calling shots and people were coming up to her uh, as sort of supplicants, right? And, and realizing like, you know, okay, so clearly a lot of the way that we relate to each other has to do with how much money we have, right? right? And then, you know, going to, uh, a, a fancy magnet high school in New York and realizing like, oh, this is what upper middle class white people with money look like and mm -hmm. seeing the relationships I had with them, right? Of, of like, you know, they wanted to take me, I, my friends wanted me to join them uh, going out to a restaurant and it's like, well, I don't, I can't afford to, to go out to eat. And I also don't know what it's like to order from a menu or any of that stuff, right? And, and, and realizing the power dynamics involved between us and them and then you know going to college and realizing like oh shit i went to you know i went to harvard it's like this is pe these are people with real money these are actually mm -hmm. rich white people <laughs> um right and like the, the you know even though we're classmates it's like we're not on the same level like mm -hmm. let's be real and then you know finally after college going to to live in west africa and you know up um, up until that point i had been the the one who you know where i, I felt like i was the one kind of in in except for being in dr like the the, the kind of less powerful one and then being in Senegal and realizing that I was a rich white man there, right? And mm. the power that that gave me and how that affected the relationships I had with people there, right? Where like, it was really hard to know if anyone who was uh, broke was basically, your, was really your friend, right? Because, you know, are they in it for, for me or are they in it for money, right? And I found myself mm. hanging out with other rich foreigners, with, with other, you know, wealthy locals because we were equals. Right. So mm -hmm. that, that all, all of that made me think about like, OK, then clearly if all these other interpersonal, cultural, family, inner, you know, like everywhere I turn, the big difference is money. Right. So let's study why some folks have and why some folks don't. Right. Who has enough to actually, um, again, have power and agency in this world and who has to obey or persuade or otherwise, you know, kind of beg. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that feels so real. I think what's really unique about what I've learned from you is when I think of who occupies the knowledge of, or who's considered an economist, someone who understands economy, who understands markets in our country and our media, those, those people are almost like, almost give, you know, 99% of them are you know really embody this like neoliberal capitalist framework that they just hold to be you know facts and true and i think what's you know you as a solidarity economist is sort of flipping that on its head and actually interrogating systems interrogate you know all these questions that you've posed so yeah it's it's you know there are a lot of economists but most of them kind of continue to perpetuate the understanding of you know, markets will just determine our lives. And, you know, we live under a meritocracy based on merit and hard work. Yeah, I mean, I, I sadly agree, like, you know, you know, there's, there's two issues that, that come up when, when, you know, we talk about uh, economics as a field. The first is just that it's incredibly, um, it's, it's incredibly, like, not diverse, right? So it's mostly men. Uh, and then it's mostly white and some Asian men. Um, you know, I, I think 
last year, less than 3% of PhDs went to Black people. It's a similar percentage for Latinx folks. There's like one Native person every decade that gets a PhD in economics. Um, you know, so it's, you don't see many people who look like us and who think about our concerns. And then the second one, which is sort of the ideology of it, which is economics is the most conservative of the social sciences. It's the one, you know, who, which is closest to power. Um, you know, I always mm -hmm. joke with people, there's a council of economic advisors. There's no council of like sociological advisors or anthropological advisors. There's no council of like historians that they, you know, that the president consults with, to, you know, on any of these issues. And because of that, the, the sort of ideological boundaries around economics are policed very heavily, right? So I am at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst for the specific reason that there's only about four or five schools in the US uh, and maybe 10 in the whole world where you can study uh, what we call heterodox economics, which is a horrible term, but basically means like <laughs> not, not down with the orthodoxy, right? Like not mm. down with the mainstream kind of pro-capitalist, pro-free market um, ideology of most economists. And, you know, this, this, this place is special. It has, it has its issues. Um, you know, it is also lacks diversity in, in, in many ways, you know, it also needs to undergo a thorough process of decolonization, but uh, I'm glad it exists for that reason, because there's not that many places, you know, I'm, I'm amazed. I have Cuban classmates that come here to study Marxist economics, right? Wow. Like, which, which a new world <laughs> still blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and it's also kind of affirming because you know, I was I was just sharing with you, like, for me, it's been hard to sort of like, who do I trust to get an analysis of like what's happening in this economic crisis? Because you know, who are you going to look to? The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and you know, it's always the same frame framework that it's not helpful and it's not it does not take into account all the things that we know to be true, right? Um, but something that I really wanted to get into with you is, you know, we're in the midst of a Black uprising, um, multiple compounding crises, economic, the health pandemic, all the things happening at once. And, you know, from what I've been seeing on social media is that right now there's a lot of messaging happening from all angles, but it really is a time where folks are trying to make meaning of this moment and understand this moment and what's next. And one of the really like sort of big suggestions or big um, campaigns I've been seeing online is the idea of the necessity to buy black um, and really be intentional and exclusively support black owned business. Um, and, you know, I'll preface this with saying that, of course, I agree with this, but you know, seeing how the discourse has kind of gone online around this point, it kind of, you know, it really like flirts with this idea of black capitalism, which I think is really dangerous in the middle of like an abolitionist black uprising in the middle of an economic crisis in the middle of a pandemic. I'm curious, you know, for you kind of how you're interpreting this kind of what are some limitations of, of, of this proposed solution? Yeah, no, I share many of the same concerns where I see very revolutionary rhetoric um, and then very conventional um, sort of uh, demands or solutions proposed, which is like, you know, like people are like, we need to abolish racism by buying at your local, you know, black owned business, which again, you know, I, I've, I've been using, I've been explaining this as sort of similar to recycling, 
right? Like no one's opposed to recycling. If you care about the environment, you should recycle. But you should also not fool yourself into believing that recycling is the ultimate solution to climate change or um, mm. all the waste that our society produces and doesn't um, return to the earth um, in an adequate way, right? So, you know, what's the problem with recycling? You know, one, it assumes that um, it's an individual consumer-based solution, right? It, it, it puts the onus on you, right? Like the, the world is falling apart. Um, we're, we're destroying the planet quickly and it's your fault because you didn't recycle when, you know, again, this is about much bigger, uh, much bigger structures of production, right? Like mm -hmm. you don't choose how much plastic gets created. You don't choose how much oil gets um, extracted from the earth, right? Those, are, those decisions are made by mostly white men in corporate boardrooms. And yeah. the only way that we can really change that is by leaning on our policymakers and, you know, through collective action, not just individuals doing their own thing silently, but all of us coming together. And you're seeing that right in the streets, right? Like we've been complaining about police brutality and organizing around it for, for decades. It mm -hmm. took a major uprising, people coming together for to us to actually create just the, even the beginning of change. Um, right. And I feel like with, um, Recycling, you know, if we really want to solve the, the issue of, of, of climate change, we need to talk about policy. We need to talk about um, who are our, our, our economy, what are the productive structures. And buying Black is similar. It doesn't get you to those bigger questions. Um, you're not changing the American economy or the global economy by buying from a locally, a local, you know, Black-owned um, bookstore versus Amazon, although you absolutely should buy from the from the Black-owned local black owned bookstore and not from Amazon. Uh, and I think, you know, the the allure of black capitalism is is seductive. Um, it is it, it puts things into a language that we already know and understand um, mm -hmm. since we've all been raised in this capitalist ideology. And, you know, again, these are debates that we haven't had in, in, in 40 or 50 years. So I feel like as this movement matures, hopefully we're going to be able to see, you know, you're seeing that black politics, unlike you know what the media represents, is not a monolith. People disagree among each other. Black folks have intense ideological disagreements. Um, and I think you know part of this is you're seeing a certain kind of black nationalism arising that you know people think that if as long as you have more black leadership and you have more black business, um, that that's the solution. And there's you know there's really, I mean, there's lots of issues with that. Uh, and it's and, and the issue of nationalism is quite complex, but you know, I would I would highlight two problems with black capitalism. The first is it's it's not really a practical solution, right? Like it's going to take you know if you if you look at um, the racial wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans, mm. um, it's barely budged in 150 right. years, right? Like at the at the at the rate we're going, it would take centuries for black capitalists to catch up to white capitalists, right? Mm. So just to give you some, because I actually did look up some of the numbers. The top 1%, to be in the top 1% of wealth for white Americans, you need to have about $14 million. To be in the top 1% of wealth for black Americans, you have to have about a million and a million and a half dollars, right? Wow. So even our rich people are not, they can't stand toe to toe with these white folks, right? And for them mm -hmm. to catch up is going to take a very, very, very long time if they ever get there. Because we know that, well, the more money you have, the easier it is to make more money, right? Mm -hmm. And if you already have a big bundle of cash, like you know, some like the, the wealthiest white Americans do, then that bundle is going to grow faster. And then the second issue is, is it's more of a kind of um, moral question of I don't 
want to live in a world where the elite looks just like the people they exploit, right? If um, I wouldn't be happy if, you know, there were 50 um, QTPOC CEOs in the, in the Fortune 500, but um, we still had unemployment, uh, homelessness, poverty, lack of healthcare. Um, you know, I don't want the the elite just to look just to look like us. I want there to not be any exploitation, right? I feel like mm-hmm. it, it shows you. You know, there's there's two different visions of kind of liberation at play. One is, are we simply trying to climb the, the ladder or climb the pyramid to the top, or are we trying to tear down these ladders and and destroy these pyramids? Which I feel like, for those of us who've who've been on on the wrong end of these hierarchies, I don't want to flip the hierarchy. I want to tear it down, right? I don't mm-hmm. want you know, like. I want a world of no exploitation, not a world of diverse exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's the part. Talk to me a little bit. You, you said something which really resonated um, that the allure of black capitalism, it's, it's, it, there's an allure, you know, I think it's, it feels different. You know, it, it feels like the, the package doesn't feel the same as just like, oh, the stale, rich, old elite white people. It really, you know, and in having this conversation and and debating with some of my folks, it's like, you know, what I hear often and what I've at one point in my life believed is, well, you know, when we have been completely removed from, you know, the acquisition of wealth or from any financial security, there is no reparations in sight, then why should we not sort of, you know, make a claim in the system and and rise to the top. So talk to me a little bit about kind of how you are interpreting this allure of black capitalism. And, you know, I don't know if it's like having a comeback, but it just feels like it is everywhere you look, you know, I think with a Beyonce, with a Jay-Z, with, you know, more and more, you know, folks, more more and more of our people up there in these rooms, a post-Obama America, it just seems like it really is like a hot topic everywhere, everywhere you look. Yeah, I mean, so I, um, you know, remember having these conversations. Again, I went to, you know, a pretty fancy school and there were people who were either coming from Black capitalist families or were were aspiring Black capitalists, right? And part of the allure is you can be a rebel and make bank, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost you anything and you can frame your own individual success as collective success, right? This is the biggest beef I would have with people where I'm like, your money is your money, right? Like if Oprah's a billionaire, it doesn't it doesn't mean shit to me. Like I still have to pay my rent. I still have to pay my, you know all of my bills. She's not paying my bills. Like I don't there's no like trickle down from Oprah to me, right? But I feel mm-hmm. like it's very alluring to be like I get to be, you know, like I think about um you know the the, the infamous interview with Killer Mike and and, and TI, right? Which is like you know, Killer Mike is wearing a Kill Your Masters t-shirt as he's telling people to stand down and stop rebelling, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, you get to play the rebel most of the time. You get to be like, you know, I'm the one that's telling you, you know, kill your masters. I'm the one who's, you know, because it, it Black success is seen as um, a challenge to white supremacy. But I feel like what people don't understand is that Black capitalist success is very easily digested by white supremacy, right? And mm-hmm. you see that in, in the you know, the last time we were having these conversations in the late 60s and early 70s and for real in earnest, um, the Nixon administration was one of the biggest um, promoters of black capitalism. They figured, OK, this is the like people are angry. They want to they want progress. 
let's offer some of them serious progress, right? And and like, you know, I'm sure it, it upset some racist white men in these corporate boardrooms, but again, that cost them a lot less. Allowing a few black people into their little country club is a lot less costly than providing everyone with adequate healthcare, education, housing, you know, all the other things. And, you know, the other way of looking at it is, you know, in college, we would joke about the ceiling Negroes and the floor Negroes, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a certain kind of, you know, upper middle class, upper class black person, the few that exist that are very much worried about the ceiling, right? Like breaking through, can I be president? Can I be a Senator? Can I be the CEO? Can I be, um, you know, the head of this, of this or this organization, you know, can I be the first black, whatever, where most of our people and, you know, like I saw this in my life growing up, we're worried about the floor. Am I going to get evicted? Am I going to get fired? Am I going to get deported? Right. And it's like, you know, who are, which black capitalism, whose concerns does it actually speak to? Right. Most of the small business people, they're small capitalists. They're, they're very rarely going to become big time capitalists. And the number of black capitalists that are like truly, you know, like have owned the means of production are people who have others produce great amounts of wealth for them. You could probably count them on your hands and toes. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, you know, again, there's a moral question of how does, you know, a Bob Johnson make a billion dollars? How does Oprah make you? Know, you don't you don't no one earns billions. Mm -hmm. You make billions by exploiting people and in many cases by exploiting your own people. Right. And I think about. Um, you know, the historically Madam C.J. Walker, right, the first black millionaire, made her money selling like um, hair relaxers. Right. And it's just like, is this is that success? Is that, you know, is is that what we want? Is that freedom or liberation? Um, and then, you know, the other thing that I, I always point to is, you know, I think for those of us who live in the U.S. And, are, and, and we're used to being sort of historically excluded from these positions, again, who don't see ourselves in these top places, who, you know, even if we're not worried about the ceiling in our own lives, you know, like the idea of role models and you want to see, um, you know, you want to see black governors and black presidents and, and black CEOs. You know, if you go abroad and you go to countries, you know, that had, that were formerly colonized that had national liberation struggles, you know, people before the national liberation struggle were also very concerned with seeing um, people that looked like them in these positions of power. And then a few decades after independence, that effect wears off, right? And and obviously, like, you know, I study international trade and finance, like the folks in control of these countries aren't only the people who are there, right? There's a lot of foreign mm -hmm. influence and control and power. But basically having, you know, if you're in Nigeria or Angola, having a Black president and a Black senator and black CEOs and all and while, while you're still struggling to survive it, it, it stops paying you know like after a while it the, the, the sort of novelty wears off and I think yeah. unfortunately for us we don't live in that world but if even if we again even if we got an elite that looked like us we would be very quickly disappointed that nothing else has changed yeah I think you know well it's well I think what's what is unique about the U.S. is is kind of like our ability to have complete historical amnesia like immediately you know a year later and for completely forgetting what were the sort of context and conditions because I, I you know I mean hearing you kind of walk me through this it really reminds me of Obama right like yeah. I mean I was young I'm only 26 the first president I, I voted for was Obama in high school you know and um like as a senior and 
yeah I of course you know it was it was it felt so different and and you know I remember my parents we were so excited and it was like wow you know I don't know what we thought I don't know if we thought like yeah he was just gonna go in there with the fro and like you know free us all but that's obviously not what happened and I think even for me and and I think a lot of people that are kind of like are part of the millennial generation like have not gotten over that disappointment I still see you know I was just sharing with you like I still see so much online like I miss Obama you know you know if Obama could be back and people sharing whatever playlists Obama makes and everyone you know like it's just this fascination while also somehow completely omitting the fact that you know he's called a deporter in chief for a reason he completely advanced this empire's tentacles across the whole world you know he really really um just stood to the to the position of like you know president of the united states of america you know i think we thought there was going to be a a change and some transformative nature to having him there um and i don't you know i just don't think that that's true um but yeah i think that that's helpful to hear that because um i know a lot of people from that experience have come out like, yeah, that's not going to free us. It ain't about, it ain't about that. You know, a lot of people caught on to, you know, this sort of effect you're talking about, like, yeah, that didn't do shit for us. Like schools are completely underfunded. Um, you know, wealth inequality has increased. Um, we are in perpetual wars, like, like not, there are no material differences and no material improvements because we had Obama in the white house. Um, I do think I, th- I think something that's a challenge um, and because this is not something I'm like an expert at or something I study um, is when I'm having this conversation or like struggling through this with people and they're like, well, what's the alternative? You know, we've been sort of indoctrinated for so long, especially if you are working class or if you're an immigrant and there's a sense of sacrifice um, I feel like we really internalize this idea of mobility and upper mobility and kind of our commitment to that for our families and our ancestors and whatnot. That folks are always like, well, what's, what's the alternative? If not capitalism, then what? If you want me to be broke, then, you know, if you don't want me to succeed, then what's the alternative? When you hear that, kind of like what comes to mind in terms of this conversation of the alternative, capitalism being the dominant, you know, this is the only way, um, yeah, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, well, a lot. <laughs> First, <laughs> I wanted to to respond to some of what you said about Obama because I do think it's a, it, it's a big, and you see this, you know, in, in like the the vote for Bernie in in the twenty twenty primary, for example, with a big generational divide uh, among Black voters and, and and other voters of color. Where I think, and I think that's, um, it's be, it's the effect of seeing Obama in office and very little else changing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think older folks. Um, for them, it was such a big deal. Just the symbolism of seeing a black man in the White House was so powerful, right? And there's this notion of just, you know, you just can can uh, trace a direct line from Martin Luther King to Obama, and he sort of are, you know, the, the last stop on 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 the train to freedom or something like that. And mm-hmm. you know, then a lot of us, and 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 it did work, right? Like I, um, I'm about ten years older than you, and and was involved in in a lot of the activism in the in the George W. Bush era around against the war, um, and all of that stuff. And you realize, like, the moment Obama got elected, a lot of those left wing resistance movements 
simply stop. People went home because they thought, okay, we have our guy in the White House and he's going to take care of it. Right. And he really demobilized a lot of people. And, and I was very cynical about the, the Obama phenomenon throughout, uh, again, because I've been around a lot of these sort of elite black people. And I was like, I just don't trust them to do right by it, right, right by the majority of, of, of people of color, black folks. Um, and, you know, people um, to this day still make excuses for him, right? They still mm -hmm. feel like he's, you know, this progressive Clark Kent and he's gonna come out of that booth like Superman at some, and it's just like, this is who he is, right? And I and I feel like you know you can point to um, some of his achievements, like the like the you know uh, Obamacare, which were were helpful, but I feel like weren't enough. And a lot of the other stuff, you know, like if someone made the joke that uh, Hamilton is the perfect uh, play for the Obama era because it's basically um, just replacing people of color um, for the same roles that like slave owners and like you know, genocidal murderers of, Indi of of the native folks were playing back then, right? It's just like, just let a competent uh, man of color run the empire, right? Yeah. Um, instead of these sort of rich white mediocrities like George W. Bush and, and, and Donald Trump. Um, and to me as an economist, the biggest proof of kind of the, the Obama contradiction, uh, you know, because I think, you know, we, we one of the workshops we do is on representation and, and redistribution, right? On like, the politics of sort of the symbolism uh, of who's in office, who's in you know who's in the media, who has visibility and 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 that kind of power, like who's represented in these institutions, um, versus the actual dollars and cents issues, right? Again, um, you know, redistribution of income and wealth towards poor people who need housing, who need healthcare, who need education, who need childcare, all of this, and you know, you had an, a President Obama who let who allowed. Um, millions of black families and, and other low-income families to be to be foreclosed on right like you're from florida i'm sure you you saw and remember people mm -hmm. losing their homes and it's like that was the greatest loss of black wealth since slavery and he presided over that right mm -hmm. and he had a lot especially those first two years when this stuff was being you know like he had democratic majorities and he was a president who was elected with a change mandate so it's like, what is what useful? How what use is having a black president if they're not going to prevent disasters like that? You know, millions of families losing their homes, uh, and you know, and and that we're still living with the aftermath of that decision, right? That is part of what gave us Trump. And then I also think a lot about Freddie Gray in in, in Baltimore, who, you know, is a city that had a black mayor, a black city council speaker, a black police chief, and at the time a black president. And you know, a bunch of the cops that killed him were also black. So I'm like, what is the point of all these black representatives if Freddie Gray is still going to get murdered in a police van with impunity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, the question of, on alternatives. I think you know this is where um, the, the the neoliberal era of the last sort of 40, 50 years um, has really um, eaten away at our imagination. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and part of it was, you know, they, they're the famous slogan um, uttered by Margaret Thatcher. There is no alternative. Right. Tina. Right. They really wanted you to believe that this is the only way that things could be. And, you know, I, I get it. People want autonomy. They want security. Right. And, and, and they think the only way to do that is to, you know, you got to sell yourself, make money. Right. That's how you gain personal. That's how you gain kind of autonomy, the freedom of, of, of action. I can do this. I can do that. And security. I can, you know, my folks are taken care of. I can pay my bills. I got some money in the bank. Um, but, you know, capitalism hasn't delivered that for, for most of our people, especially if you take a global perspective. Most, you know, most 
people in Latin America, Africa are getting fucked by global capitalism, capitalism right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the part of me of the, of, the, of the tragedy of all this is, you know, we, when you're talking to Americans, you're talking to the winners of the system. Right. Right. We're, 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 we're the top 10% globally. And, um, you know, even us, you know, people, even the people who have money are always scared about losing it. So I feel like part of what we're trying to do is give people a sense that we can do better than this. Right. And part of that is the historical amnesia, right? Where one of the key points that Marxists always make is there was a world, you know, we've been human, we've been modern human beings for like thousands of years. We've had capitalism for maybe 500 right Mm -hmm. so there was a world before capitalism and there'll be a world after it um it could be replaced by something worse right it doesn't necessarily mean that things go get better and are always on the up and up but these things are you know they they have a a life cycle they start they you know grow and then they die and there are alternatives right we can look at both what people did before capitalism and 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 the other and the and the multiple things that we do now that are different other ways of relating to each other that aren't purely based on profit um you know i like you know i always joke with people like you know if someone asks you for directions do you charge them you know and the answer is no that would be ridiculous right and that's a form of that's you know that's everyday communism that's being like hey i'm gonna look out for you you're lost let me tell you where to go right back before you know cigarettes were like 90 dollars a pack people would if you ask someone to bum a cigarette they would give it to you right like um and i feel like we you know there there are other ways of being um, that build on our on our indigenous traditions in many ways um, that are in some ways just sort of, a, of trying to return to life as it was for, for many of our communities before um, colonialism and capitalism changed everything. And it's not to say that these societies were perfect, but they did have a different way of, of relating, of, of having people relate to each other, right? So what that means in the modern context is cooperatives, right? Worker ownership, so, so changing, you know, what does it really mean to own your own work? Um, to own your own home, right? But not simply as an individual, but collectively, right? Like what does it mean for us to actually own our communities or own our land, not simply be renters or homeowners, um, you know, which are community land trusts and other ways of, you know, all of these are ways of taking these things outside of the market, outside of ways of just right now, like we treat human beings as as labor, right? Something to just be bought and sold. And, you know, if you don't like this wage, then, you know, go go find some, go find someone else who will pay you. And as opposed to recognizing every individual has intrinsic self-worth, right? And we treat mm-hmm. housing like a commodity, right? It's just a thing to be bought and sold. And if you need it, but can't afford it, then too bad, right? And the same thing with, um, you know, our money, right? Like we, um, rich people decide what the future is gonna look like. They're the ones who make deci- investment decisions. The rest of us, um, again, you know, we over, we exaggerate the power that consumers have to change these things. So we, there, you know, there is an alternative. People have been thinking, there many alternatives and people debate those and i feel like you know the part of the solidarity economy framework is helping people understand what it would really mean to have control over your life control over your community right so real autonomy and real security right really is a real sense of we're looking out for each other and not simply i got to build up my own war chest of savings um in case something bad happens right Mm -hmm. and and again that look concretely that means Worker ownership cooperatives, um, which have a long, you know, history in the in, in Black and Latinx and and Asian communities, and you know, arguably all of like um, Native American economics was built on this principle of communalism, community land trust, and other forms of limited equity of, of housing co-ops. So that you know, we don't we don't need to pay rent. Housing has housing has a cost. You have to maintain it, 
But beyond that, why should I be paying any more than what it costs to maintain the home, right? And it should be primarily a home. It shouldn't be an investment asset. Um, it should be a place for people to live. Um, and then, you know, we, there, there are some really interesting experiments in democratic finance uh, of ways of, of, of thinking about who controls the money and investment in our communities. And then participatory budgeting, right? Like direct control by citizens of their governments, not us electing people who are going to sit um, and make backroom deals um, that are, you know, heavily influenced by lobbyists and, 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 and corporations and big donors, but like us deciding, right? And, and the principle is the same, like those who have the most at stake in the decision should have the most power to make that decision. And like, yeah. we can do that, right? Like these things are possible. There are alternatives. Yeah. We can, and we can do better than this, right? I think a lot of people are scared. Oh, you know, capitalism, you know, what, what, like if we don't do this, then what's going to, you know, it's like people are, you know, it, it, it's, it reminds me of how people stay stuck in unhappy situations because they're scared of having something that might be worse, right? They're just scared to take that leap and, they, and they'd rather be kind of comfortably unhappy um, than really take that leap. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of a lot of conversations kind of like with my parents and my mom, you know, they're just kind of like older working class folks, like just trying to get by at this point. They don't want to, you know, ponder on our conditions and, and, you know, imagine and all of that. So we have a lot of like frustrating back and forths, but that's kind of usually always like my conclusive point. I'm like, okay, so this is it. This, this is, this is it. <laughs> then that's what you're saying, you know? Um, but, you know, I was thinking of two things. Um, while you were talking, um, a you know, I was um, I was talking with some friends today. We were talking about salaries and money and how much we make and all of this. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, but there's some research that shows that you know, after seventy five thousand dollars of your income, like your happiness does not increase. You know, and you know, we're making. I'm like, oh, I would be so happy with seventy five thousand a year. You know, so we're we're talking about this, and it then led us to a conversation around like what is it that really fulfills us? Is it a, a sort of salary or would we actually prefer for rent in Miami to be significantly more affordable? And, you know, we got into that conversation and ultimately like what folks were offering is like, it's not so much the money. I just don't want to have this anxiety over my basic essentials. Right. Um, which I think some like, you know, maybe this is just, this is just a small sample size. This is just my friend group, but I do think like sometimes it's we're sold the idea of like, oh, no, it's actually how much cash do you have? And I'm like, I don't know if I need all this money, but I am more interested in having safe shelter, having access to healthy foods, you know, having access to the just the really essentials and having access to like public space, all of this that I, you know, I, I don't know if we are actually are inherently as greedy and as you know kind of all the things that the system frames people to be quote-unquote inherently so you know you made me think of that and you know what you were offering in terms of alternatives and so many different things there's so many different things you know this could be a whole separate conversation and you know you do so many workshops on literally just alternatives but you know in my organizing work right now it's really walking folks through that you know I've spent the last couple of years thinking of this idea of like, why is the current system, particularly in, in public schools here in Miami, like it's a budget a little bit shy of $6 billion. It's the fourth largest school board district in the nation. And it's exactly how you described it. You know, it's 
these elected officials, um, you know, with no term limits, they run unopposed, um, they won't take any meeting with anybody, them, the superintendent and like this, you know, the budget folks make backdoor negotiations on this public money. And we've spent so much time talking to teachers, students, and like knocking on folks' doors. It's like, hey, do you know the budget's almost $6 billion with a B? And they're like, no. And I'm like, do you think you should have a say? And they're like, yes, what the fuck? You know, like, it's just a no-brainer. You know, people are just like, of course. Um, and and it's been, it's been really it's been really instructive for me to to be in practice of this of like reclaiming public dollars and reclaiming this that we deserve public infrastructure because we literally fund it i think that's like what really upsets people it's not just like oh because we deserve education it's like that is our money this is literally like this is our pool that we have built and yet we have no say we have no sway in and what ends up happening um so you know it it's been yeah, it's been it's challenging because it's it's very upsetting. And, you know, even, you know, even in like some participatory budgeting experiments that we're studying, it's like they'll give folks like a very, very small amount, you know, and it's like, OK, cool. That's a tactic. What would it look like to actually have this real participatory, like democratic process where people just have much more of an influence rather than, you know, lobbyists who want schools in Florida to be privatized and be charter schools and want police in every school, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you really, you got me thinking a lot about that. Like, I feel like now on a daily basis, I'm thinking around public money. Where is it going? Why do we have no say on it? You know, you said there was a lot there. Um, you know, first I, I wanted to pick up on your point on, you know, money is not happiness. And you're right. There's a, there's a number here in the U S that it, it I think it's 75 now um, before it used to be 60,000 where at that point, you know, happiness rises with income until that number. And then at that point, like you can, you get more money, but no more happiness. Uh, mm. And there's a similar number on the international scale where it's about $10,000 per capita, right? Per person in your country that, you know, we people find researchers find that like, you know, you give people more money um, and they're happier mainly because they're getting their basic needs met. And then once they have their basic needs met, whatever that costs in your society, then the rest of it um, doesn't really do much for you. Uh, and one of the things that shocked me as you know, I, when when I got to college and, and started meeting actual rich people was that they were miserable. Where I was like, wait, mm -hmm. all of this, we have this entire system that oppresses people and exploits them and leaves a you know billion people starving and um, all these people unemployed and creates these massive slums around the world and and you know all of these social and environmental costs. And y'all motherfuckers ain't even happy. Like that part. you, yeah, th that that killed me. Where I was just like, when I once I realized how miserable, I'm like, all of this to give you money and y'all are fucking miserable. Um, so I just I just had to mention that because I was like, this it, mm -hmm. it always drives me crazy. And then I make the point about security too, because one thing the other things that struck me is even these folks who have more money than I could ever even think about spending, they don't sleep well at night. They're constantly scared of losing it. Right. Which I'm like, man, again, and these are the winners, right? These are the folks who are supposedly benefiting from all this. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the question of story budgeting is, again, there's nothing is a, is a cure all. Right. Like people have done this. There are like, you know, the World Bank rep rec recommends sorry, budgeting or used to as a good governance measure. Right. So like there are kind of whack co-opted versions of all of these things. Um, you know, a lot of times 
what you're talking about is what happens where the city will say, okay, we're going to do particular budgeting, but we're going to give y'all a tiny part of the budget. Mm-hmm. You know, like they did it in New York and it's like, we got a few dog parks, which is cool. I'm, you know, like I don't own, I don't own a dog, but the people who are, you know, out there with, who are, you know, have dogs as companions, I'm sure it's great for them. But I'm like, that's not really the kind of transformative vision we're talking about. And even in Brazil, where it's, you know, in Porto Alegre, where it was done, um, where it originated and, and has been sort of done the most, um, and they were able to do things like change bus lines and like more significant things. It was never, you know, like they never let them touch the capital budget. So you can't think anything long-term. And then I think there, even there it was less than, I think at most it may have been like 20% of the operating budget, mm-hmm. right? But it, but it's still, you know, and even then, even with this watered down version, when the right-wing administration came in, they got rid of it, right? It's still too dangerous a precedent. The idea that people should be making their own decisions is still, and I feel like, you know, as, as, as a person of color, as a as a working class person, I also think a lot about the inferiority complexes that come with these identities. We're, we're taught that, well, you know, like one of the big things I saw and one of the differences between going to a ghetto school versus going to some of these fancy schools is in fancy school, they teach you that your opinion matters, that you have shit to say, right? Which is, which is why I, I would even end up on the other side of this microphone with you, right? Because someone mm-hmm. told me somewhere down the line that what I had to say mattered and I should have an opinion, right? When I was going to school with other working class Dominican kids, nobody told me that, yeah. right? And part of that is getting over and being like, yes, we should ha- we should be making these decisions. We are the experts in our own lives. I don't need to listen to these folks who, who think they know better than me what I need for myself. And, you know, and, and then people also have a right to make mistakes, right? Like even now, like you see where it's like, well, like, you know, Trump is terrible, but that, you, you get the president that you deserve. And I'm like, most mm-hmm. of us ain't even vote for him. And again, we have this very, very shallow form of democracy where all you do is you go and you, you know, you press a button or a lever every four years, you know, and, and then people blame you for all the outcomes that are very indirect effects of that decision that you, again, and again, you don't even, you don't even, you're not even the person who really chooses who ends up on the ballot, because even if you vote in a primary, there's a bunch of people who donated money, who, who typically choose who, who are the viable candidates in the, you know, there's a pre-primary of, of, of big money donors. So right. it's like, how much agency, how much decision-making power do you really have under our representative <sighs> democracy system? So I feel like even if people had participatory budgeting for the whole budget and made some serious mistakes, yeah, if you voted for it and y'all deliberated and you had a real say in that budget, then you own that mistake. Because mm-hmm. um, I, and I feel like most people would be down with for that, right? Because a lot of the times, even if the decision outcome is is the best is is the best one like the if the procedure is unfair people will think of the outcome as unfair right. whereas if the procedure is fair then it's like well you got to live with your decision you had to say right. mm-hmm. yeah no there's so much i mean there's so much i feel you know i guess to switch gears a little bit you know because i'm thinking you know folks that are going to listen to this is like all right we've dropped we've dropped a lot of just um you know hard truths uh uh, you know in this time but you know it just really is a sober assessment of our conditions but I am curious kind of you from your perspective in the middle of an economic crisis in the middle of a black uprising what are some of the key things that you're seeing unfold that are keeping you sort of rooted in your work rooted in praxis rooted in study and that are kind of making it feel like okay this is worth it or or you know like giving you a little bit of of hope in this moment 
I mean, this moment is giving me a lot of hope, right? I've always been a, a big fan of the Gramsci quote, you know, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect, right? Like we're, we're fighting an uphill battle and the chances that we get liberation, the odds of liberation are never good, right? Mm-hmm. There's never like, I would never bet on liberation, right? Or freedom or revolution or any of these things because the odds are always low. But I do feel like they went from being like damn near zero to something above zero. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I thought, and, you know, like depending on, you know, I, I, I thought I might never see this day. Right. I'm like, there's plenty of people who have fought, who were much smarter than I was, who are much more committed and, and dedicated and disciplined, um, who will never see a potential, you know, revolutionary opening like this. And I think that's all it is. It's a potential opening. Right. Um, I don't think we should exaggerate what has happened. Um, this was, you know, the, the, we've gone from a system that wasn't gonna change anything to now a few symbolic concessions. And if if we keep pushing, we might get to some actual reforms. And then if we're really lucky and keep pushing, then we might get to some actual revolutionary social change. But that's a long way off. And I feel like our movement is very young um, in many ways. I mean, like the people out in the streets are young people and that's usually the case. But also like in terms of these discussions, like even the, the what we were talking about with black capitalism, like, you know, I, I keep telling folks like, you know, we've been having a game with among my friends of like, what, you know, if you compare this to the civil rights movement, what year is this? Is this mm-hmm. 1955 and like, we're just about to pop off like the Montgomery bus boycott? Is this 1960 and we're on the cusp of, of a few legislative victories? You know, like you get the civil rights act of 1964, the voting rights act of 1965. Um, is this 1965, right? Like the, the, the Black Panther party isn't even formed till 1966, right? Like. In 1960, nobody's talking about black power. By 1970, people are like bombing federal buildings, right? Mm-hmm. So like, there's an so there's an arc to these things, right? right. And 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 it, and it could also just fizzle out, right? Like I remember thinking about um, Occupy and what that moment yeah. meant. And I and I do feel like you know I I don't want to be unfair to the, to the activists involved and to you know, many of them, myself and many of my dearest friends were were all involved. And I do feel like. It changed the discourse. It set up the, the it set the table for Bernie. It, it informed um, a lot. You know, like we're we're much better prepared for this huge economic crisis than we were for the 2008 2009 financial crisis. In terms of just like our messaging is better, our organization is better. We're still not there yet. Um, and I and I try not to be one of these economists that believes that just things getting really bad is is gonna is gonna push people to, to question the system and rebel because you know there's a difference between what happens objectively and how people interpret it right, right. You, could, you could be like you know why were why do we supposedly have the greatest economy of all time you know record long um economic expansion record low unemployment even among even in black and, and brown communities and yet two weeks of unemployment and people are, are forming miles long lines for food Right. And you could be like, that's capitalism. Or you can be like, let's blame the Mexicans or the gays or the Chinese or the immigrants or whoever the fuck. Right. And I feel like that's the challenge for us now is, you know, bringing this movement along, keeping it alive, sustaining it and then helping and then trying to push it forward, both um, in terms of organization right, and coming up with new ways of organizing ourselves, new demands, you know, like because a part of it is, you know, that the system is seen a lot of this shit before and they and they learn and they adapt right um and then also the ideological struggle right like right now i would you know i'm sure most people like we said would probably be happy with just sort of 
by black, right? So people were again making these revolutionary um questions, asking these revolutionary questions, and then coming up with very mild um answers to them, right? And I feel like we need to, you know, part of uh what I hope you know this podcast and, and other efforts like it do is help people kind of sharpen their 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 analysis, really think more deeply. And I feel like, you know, I I I don't assume that anyone is born woke. Um, we're all learning, right? And and I feel like we this is a process for all of us, for me too. Like I, you know, I'm I'm looking at historical analogies. I wasn't alive in 1960. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and this is a different moment. We're in a different world in 2020. So, you know, I feel like this is this is a learning process for all of us. I just hope that we can um that this that this is the beginning of something bigger. Uh, and I think it's possible, you know, the other thing that history teaches us is these things come in waves. Um, you know, the, you know, again, we have a very kind of American centric view of the world because this country is very provincial, but like, you know, and, and, and the late sixties and early seventies had, um, the other part of it, the other historical lesson is freedom is contagious, right? Mm-hmm. So we saw the civil rights movement inspired women's liberation, the second wave of women's liberation inspired, um, queer liberation, Stonewall, you know, the Stonewall riots were in 1969 and inspired other people of color to organize the young lords, the, the red, you know, um, brown berets, all of those folks. Um, and then it was part of a worldwide movement where there were people, there was, you know, pe- movements for radical social change in, in, in Mexico, right? This is when the students got slaughtered in 1968 and um, before the Olympics. This is, you know, like, the whole thing in France with, with, with May 1968 and the students and the workers getting together. There were student movements in, in Senegal. There were student movements, you know, like behind the Iron Curtain in, in, the, in the Prague Spring, right? So I feel like I just hope that freedom in the air will encourage people to push for more. And and, and mm-hmm. I think we have we have an opportunity where it's like, you know, we obviously me, this, this is much bigger than me and you, but I want to be able to tell um, my son, who's you know eight nine months old now, and, and and was born in the middle of this, to be to be like, hey, we tried. We really put forth our best effort to like make these movements grow and expand and go and, and get more sophisticated, right? So to me, like right now, we're we're um, you know we're we're reliant on one or two organizations and and one or two kind of simple messages, and yeah. and that has to change. We need to have more organizations and more sophisticated messaging and and new ways of organizing yeah i love i love how you sort of like wrap that up like we need we're going to need more of this and i also kind of keep myself like the way i you know allow myself to rest at night in the midst of all of this is that i know where so many of us are are committed and so many of us are embodying like a deepened sense of rigor a deepened sense of like thirst for something else that, you know, none of us can predict what's going to come next. We, you know, I I think especially right now, I can't even predict what's going to happen in three months. But I, what I do, what sort of does keep me rooted is that some of us are really pushing the needle, are really just, are really offering something more bold, are, are, forcing people to interrogate or forcing people to tap into their imagination and you know at the end of the day sometimes that's all we can do to keep it pushing and to sort of embody this like revolutionary spirit that you know really is just like ancestral at this point yeah no and and I feel like that's you know thank you for reminding me like you know what, what keeps me grounded or at least I try to to keep myself grounded on a personal level is you know realizing that 
I am part of a much longer tradition of folks mm-hmm. who have tried and fought before um, and learning from, you know, the experiences of, of, you know, generations of freedom fighters, you know, both the ones that we know that are famous, um, you know, the Dr. Kings and Malcolm X's, but also like, the, you know, some of the lesser known names like Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and here in the U.S. Uh, and then the people who we'll never, ever hear about, right? The people right. Who, are the, who are the majority. And then thinking about just my own family and 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 why um, why I set off on this journey in the first place was just realizing that you know the anger I had at, at kind of the the injustice that I saw just the absolute rage and 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 trying to cultivate that right because I feel like we're we're you know pushed to to avoid negative emotions but we should be angry right like mm-hmm. we, we should, you know and I think about Cornell West as a line about you know we're we're well adjusted to to injustice. We become well adjusted yeah. to, and, and and you know, resisting that process and and being like, you know, there's no reason why um, anyone should have to worry about being evicted right now. Like that's completely a political choice. There's no reason why anyone should be going hungry right now. We live in a world that produces more than enough food, right? And being like, if I see someone who is on the street, if I see someone who is hungry, if I see someone who is unnecessarily suffering, I should be angry, right? And like, mm-hmm. I want to. Um, to build a world that works for for my family and community, where 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 people who you know are just regular hardworking folks can live decent lives, right? Like we're not even we're not even asking for like you know I don't want people to live royally. Just want people to to, to you know have a decent place to sleep and and not have to worry about you know again. There's there's you know like I think part of this is people assume that we're selling them this utopia where no one suffers and every everyone's life is. And it's like no, they're still gonna like we're still human beings. People are still going to die young. There's still going to be all kinds of crap, but like, can we get rid of the unnecessary suffering? Right. Yeah. Like, like, let's just focus on that. And, and the very real, con- you know, it's like, cause I feel like, you know, you, especially as I get more in, in, in further along in my academic career, you know, it's a lot of like big abstract ideals and this, and it's just like, what we're talking about is just, you know, helping little Joselito find a place to sleep. Like, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that like, Maria can eat, right? Like making sure yeah. that like the people in our community are just being taken care of and can worry about the finer things in life um, and not just getting by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always, I always remind myself, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like really what we're demanding at its core is just to be able to sort of experience dignity and love. You know, those are two things that have been completely stripped from us because of these systems, because of this economy. Um, So thank you. I want to thank you for everything you offered today. I feel like every time I have a conversation with you, it's super clarifying for me. Um, And it's also very grounding um, because I think, you know, we, we hear just like the crisis headlines. And I think it's sometimes easy to get caught up in that in that mess emotionally and psychologically. But I think the more we can root ourselves in historical analysis and honest assessments of what is happening and what is not, and also like activating, you know, our creative side and asking like, you know, what is it that we dream of? Like what, you know, we, could we do better? I think we can. And this conversation was really helpful in, in sort of rooting me in all of that. So thank you. No, thank you for the opportunity. And it's also um, really rooting for me because to get, you know, to, to talk to people who are doing the work on the ground and, and people who also just see and process the world differently. Um, you know, I feel like I, I fear um, what being in, in, you know, we, we become what we do, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you're doing um, research, um, you know, again, on abstract issues for a small number of people, then that's who you become. And I feel like doing things like this remind me that we could be otherwise and it helps me be a different person. So I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, thank you so much.